Well, good morning and welcome to Logos. If you're new with us today, thank you so much for joining us in worship. Um, It's our mission in this church family to faithfully follow the Lord Jesus Christ and to lead all others in a joyful life with him. We believe that in Jesus, uh, we have forgiveness of sin. We have restoration with a God who has made us and has given us purpose. And through Christ, we have a renewed purpose uh, to be a part of what God is doing in all the earth, even from the very beginning of creation. And so we're grateful that we get to do this thing together. But if you are new with us, we ask that you let us know that you're here today. You can do that by going to fbcsa.org slash connect, or there should be a little um, little flyer right in front of you, not flyer, but little sheet of paper. You can write on their name information and let us know that you were here with us today. And uh, you can actually put that in one of those bins that are along the walls. Let us know how hey, I was here too. But we would love to know that you worshiped with us today so that we can be in contact with you at a later time. Uh, we are in this series um, that we have called Unlocking the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And uh, this is, is this week three? I think, thank you. I think this is, I think this is week three. And so uh, week one, we were uh, reviewing, reminding ourselves of the story of Noah. And Noah became like a brand new Adam, that God restarted the world through Noah because God is committed to fulfilling that original commission to be fruitful and to multiply and to rule over the earth as his representatives being made in his image. And then last week, we, uh, we were reminded about Abraham's story, that God chose a special uh, man, not because he was perfect or righteous, but God set his eyes on Abraham and chose Abraham and chose him to have a special family through whom he would bless the world and fulfill that original commission to be fruitful and to multiply and to rule the earth that his representatives made in his image. And of course, we also know that through Abraham, he would bless all the nations, which includes us. And so today, we're going to skip a few important people. We know Abraham's son was Isaac, and God set his his favor on Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, um, and then Jacob had 12 sons of whom Joseph is one of those, and that's where we land today. And just to reemphasize this, God is working out his plan to bless all the world in spite of our sin and brokenness. Uh, through this special family that he's chosen through Abraham and now has continued through Joseph, a story we're very, very familiar with. We're actually going to start at the end of this story uh, and Joseph's, uh, Joseph and his brothers. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21, picking up at the very end of the book of Genesis. So let's stand together and we're going to read those few verses. Let's read with one another. But now that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers became fearful 
Now Joseph will show his anger and pay us back for all the wrong we did to him, they said. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before your father died, he instructed us to say to you, please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you for their sin in treating you so cruelly. So we, the servants of the God of your father, beg you to forgive our sin. When Joseph received the message, he broke down and wept. Then his brothers came and threw themselves down before Joseph. Look, we are your slaves, they said. But Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, the life of Joseph, how you used him despite of all the things that happened to him. You preserved him, you blessed him. And Lord, now we are recipients of that story and that blessing because of how you used him. Lord, now help us to see and hear and obey your word. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. This morning, um, I want us to walk through the anatomy of forgiveness. Is that not what we see happening here? This process of confession and forgiveness and reconciliation. So um, let's do that with one another. The reason why I want us to spend time talking about the anatomy of forgiveness, because I think very few of us really put this into practice in our daily life. Um, perhaps because we don't really know how to. Maybe it hasn't been modeled for us in our homes. I think we understand the concept of forgiveness. If you've grown up in the church, you know that for God so loved the world that he sent the son and the son died on the cross and rose from the grave. And it's through his work on the cross um, that we can receive forgiveness from God. So I think if you've grown up in the church, you understand the notion of forgiveness. Even if you didn't, even if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you've heard this concept of forgiving someone that has done you wrong. So the idea of forgiveness is not something that's foreign to us, but I do think we all struggle. Many have struggled with the actual working out and process of forgiveness in everyday life. I've been in marriage ministry um, for for, let's see, almost nine years with my wife, Anna. And one of the things that we have seen in the context of marriage is that, man, they really struggle with knowing how to work out forgiveness with one another. What does it actually look like? And if that's true of two people in marriage, odds are it's true of every person, whether they're married or not. And so I think it's incredibly valuable for us to be flies on the wall as we see this happening and taking shape between Joseph and his 
brothers, and it's been a long time coming. And so just beginning in verse 15, it says, but now that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers became fearful, fearful. There was a great need for real forgiveness and reconciliation here. At this point, Jacob and his whole family, including his sons and all their families, they have been in Egypt 17 years at this point, not to mention decades before when they actually did Joseph incredible harm, beat him to the inch of his life, and then sold him into slavery. This is decades in the making. And they were fearful, even though they had been around Joseph, obviously from afar, up close and from afar, things had been fine. They were fearful because the burden and weight that they had been carrying because of the sin that they had committed against Joseph. There was a tremendous need for forgiveness and reconciliation. That burden of guilt and shame had to be heavy, don't you think? Up to this point, there had been no direct confession of sin. I mean, it was like the elephant in the room. And that elephant had gotten incredibly heavy. And even us, when we carry around a small sin, have you ever... Have you ever gone to the gym and you start off with a really light weight and you're like, gosh, I could feel like I could do this forever. But after a while, even that light weight feels heavy and painful. Can you imagine, this was no small sin. This was huge betrayal, harm done against Joseph. They had been carrying the heaviest weight. And they're fearful. Joseph's gonna, now's the time. Joseph, our dad's dead, and there's nothing keeping Joseph for taking us out. There is a need for forgiveness. Even though Joseph had already acknowledged, if you go back to chapter 45, in those initial encounters with his brothers, when everything is going down and they've come to secure food, and they're appealing to this great leader, Joseph. They don't know who he is. He finally comes out, and he says, I want you to know, I want you to know that everything you intended, you intended evil for me to get rid of me, but God intended for good. That's back in 45. And still, there's no real confession that's happening. There's real no acknowledgement, this is what we did to you. That's not doesn't happen until now, but it's not enough for Joseph just to acknowledge that what they intended for evil, God intended for good. He even needed this moment of confession and forgiveness. He needed that. Joseph's trust in God, listen to me, Joseph's trust in God did not replace his need for their, for their acknowledgement of what they had done to him. Sometimes that's how we can think about the sin we've committed. I mean, things seem fine. They've just kind of worked out. I mean, our relationship seems okay now. 
Even those things might seem okay and the rug might be smoothed out a little bit, there is still a desperate need for the one you have sinned against to hear from your own mouth, this is what I have done to you, to own it. They needed it and Joseph needed it. The passing of time does not erode the need for personal confession. I don't care how long it has been or how small you think the sin is. Time does not heal all wounds when they go unconfessed. But for many of us, that's how we kind of live it out. We've said something, we've popped off, or maybe it's even a greater sin. And we just hope that it just won't come up. And then we tell a joke and things seem fine again. It's not fine. Both these men, his brothers and Joseph, were desperate. They had a need for the sin to be confessed. So part of that anatomy of forgiveness is the work of confession, owning to the sin and the wounds you have caused to the person you said or did those things to. And then we have the ask. Now this ask is actually kind of an interesting ask because it comes by way of a messenger. I think because of political reasons, they couldn't just march up to Joseph, even though they were his brothers. They probably had to get an appointment. I don't know, but they sent a messenger, also likely out of fear. But in verse um, verses 16 through 18, it says this. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before your father died, he instructed us to say to you. Now, it's interesting, just with that alone, we know there had to be confession at some point with their dad, right? Because he thought Joseph had been dead this whole time. And so confession had happened at some point, but not with Joseph. But in verse 17, he says, our dad has instructed us to say to you, please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you, for their sin and treating you so cruelly. And these are their own words. So we, the servants of the God of your father, they're appealing to their dad, You love your dad, and we're servants of the God of your father, beg you to forgive our sin. I think it's important when they describe through Abraham's words the nature of what they have done, they use the words, Great wrong. Of course, this is translated, right? Great wrong for this sin and treating you so cruelly. Um, They don't mince words. Now, they don't describe everything that they did, but they don't try to make light of their sin. They don't try to make light of their words. They don't try to make light of their actions. They don't try to make it small or diminish it. They just say it was It was great. And it was cruel. And there's no buts here. They don't say, so we beg you to forgive our sin, but if you just hadn't 
gloated about that stinking jacket, if he hadn't talked about your dreams over and over again, but as if the dreams and the boasting was reason for them to do great harm. But we can find ourselves, when we have sinned against someone, to say, you know what, I, I, I said those things to you, but I, I wouldn't have had to say them if you didn't do that. If you just hadn't nagged me so much, I, I, I wouldn't have to say those things. Listen, the moment you interject a but into a ask for forgiveness, you completely destroy, erase the ask for forgiveness. Because where does it put the blame? On the person that you sinned against. It's really your fault. You're responsible for the harm that I did to you. But they don't do that. Joseph's brothers say, we did something cruel to you. It was a great sin, and we beg you to forgive us. Another thing that I think is important for us to see in the ask is that the, it was an ask, it was not a demand. You owe us forgiveness. Of course, looking at their sin and what they, I mean, that would be a just an insane thought for them to demand forgiveness. But we can do that. Sometimes we can abuse the gospel and we can confess, maybe with all sincerity, and we don't ask, but we demand. Why won't you forgive me? I mean, I asked you to forgive me. I mean, if, if you're really a good Christian, wouldn't you forgive me? They don't demand that. They don't say those kind of things. Man, we really struggle with the ask. I mean, no surprise, who wants to own up to the things they've said and they've done to the people that they love? Right? It takes a lot of vulnerability to be able to own up to that without any buts and without demanding just asking, this is, this is what I've done. There's no excuse for it. I know I've done you great harm. Will you, will you forgive me? And, and by the way, just saying sorry and apologizing is not the same as forgiveness. I apologize. That's great and all. But it always needs to be followed up. Will you forgive me? If Anna were here, and I, I've gotten her permission, I talked with her about this sermon and she said, by the way, you can tell them that I've wrestled with forgiveness, our heart, our, the ask of forgiveness for almost our whole marriage. We've been married to be 21 years in May. And she would say, it's only been in the last four to five years that I've begun to understand the anatomy of forgiveness and put it into practice. We've, we've got to get to this place. So we see the need. They, they had carried this weight. They're fearful for both Joseph and the brothers. There was this need for 
the elephant in the room to be seen and heard and touched and felt, and the ask needed to happen, and then the actual extension of forgiveness we see in verse 19 and 20. Verse 18, they say, just make us slaves. Hey, we've seen that before, right? The story of the prodigal son. Just make me a slave. I've sinned so great against you. They do the same thing. Don't kill us, just make us slaves. But Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? It's here that we find Joseph's first reason or basis for forgiving his brothers. What's his reason? His reason for both reasons, we'll get to the second one in a second, um, is, is God. Joseph's reason and basis or how he could forgive his brothers are both the same, God and God. And the first is, um, he says, listen, I want you to let you know, you don't have to be afraid of me. I can forgive you because justice is in God's hands. That's what Joseph says. He says, I can, I can, I can no longer hold this sin against you because I can entrust vengeance and justice to the Lord. Now, that doesn't sound on the face of it like forgiveness, does it? But Joseph is saying, I, I, don't, I don't have to carry that anymore. I don't have to carry justice anymore. I don't have to make sure that I get it right against you and take out vengeance and justice against you. No, I can, I can relate to you in a brand new way because I can hand that all over to God. Now notice, Joseph does not diminish or dismiss their sin. That's huge here. He doesn't say, he doesn't say this, it's no big deal, but don't worry about it. You know, let bygones be bygones. It's no big deal. That was so long ago. He doesn't say that. He says, the reason I can forgive you and you don't have to be afraid is because I'm gonna let God take care of the justice. It's not my job. It's not my job to do that. And that frees Joseph to forgive because justice is in the hands of God, not in his hands. Philip Yancey, the well-known theologian, philosopher, professor, wrote this, by forgiving another, I am trusting that God is a better justice maker than I am. We just don't forgive out of thin air. Forgiveness never happens in a vacuum never happens in a vacuum. The gospel for us on this side of Jesus, the death and resurrection is the reason and the means by which we now forgive. In fact, it's the same reason that Joseph would forgive even though he didn't know Jesus, see Jesus, anticipate Jesus. It's the same reason Ephesians chapter four, verse 32 says, instead be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as God through Christ has forgiven you. And then we have the parable that Jesus tells about the, the unforgiving servant, even though he's been forgiven of so much. 
Um, the gospel reminds us that we have been forgiven much, and therefore, as we've been forgiven, we extend forgiveness to others. But notice where justice happens. My sin is not dismissed or diminished because of God's forgiveness. No, justice happens where? It happens on the cross. Forgiveness never happens in a vacuum. And that's what Joseph is saying. I can forgive you because God takes care of it. God will take care of it. And we can forgive brothers and sisters for the same reason. We don't make sin small and say it was no big deal. Those words just kind of rolled off or what you did to me, the betrayal, it's no big deal. No, we say, I can forgive you because Jesus died for that sin. But we want people to make sin small. God never makes sin small. The reason we have the the power to forgive is because in Christ we are forgiven because he died on the cross for your sin and my sin. And every time we extend forgiveness, that's what we're saying. I, I don't have to hold on to that. I can hand that over to God. I don't, I don't have to take justice in my own hands because Jesus has already died for them. He's taken care of it. I mean, that, there are rhythms in my life. Um, in, in marriage where, gosh, we sin against each other, right? Until Jesus comes back, I'm gonna sin against Anna and she's gonna sin against me and hopefully less and less and less as we learn to love each other, yield ourselves to Jesus more and more each day. But nonetheless, until Jesus returns and completely saves every ounce of my being, I'm still gonna fall short. In those moments of falling short, when Anna has sinned against me, um, I would have to preach the gospel to myself. And it would go like this. I wouldn't say it out loud, but I would run it through my mind. I don't have to hold on to this. I can forgive her because Jesus has already died for that sin. There's power in that. That was the basis of Joseph's forgiveness is God is gonna take care of the justice. Am I God, he says? I'm not the one that wields justice here. God takes care of it. I can forgive you. The second reason is an even more profound reason. He says in verse 20, this is not new. We've seen this in chapter 45. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. So Joseph is saying, you don't have to be afraid of repercussions and vengeance and me taking justice in my own hands because God intended it for good. God took your sin and intended it for good. What you intended to do great harm and evil against me, God used for good. And Joseph says, for that reason, you don't have to be afraid of me. I can forgive you. Now that's hard to wrap our brain around. But that's the reason why Joseph can extend forgiveness and assure them that you don't have to be afraid of what I'm gonna do to get you back. 
Really, we see the echo of this in Romans 8, 28, right? Y'all, some of you can quote this from heart when, by heart when Paul is talking about brokenness and suffering. He says in verse 28, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Perhaps one of the reasons that we can extend forgiveness to even those who are closest to us Because God has this incredible way of taking the mess and the hurt and pain and bringing good out of it. We don't think about it that way. That's how Joseph was thinking about it. Man, you meant meant to mess me up, but God brought good out of it. He leveraged your cruelty to posture me in a place where I could bring great good. Now, this is a theme throughout all of Genesis. I just want to mention this for a moment. This is one of God's central themes from the very beginning of creation of the heavens and the earth. What does he say? It is good. It is good. It is good. And now we have this moment where Joseph says, it is good. It's only through the work of God, even in the midst of our sin and brokenness and sin against one another, that God works out good. God is faithful to work out his plan through human history to bring good. And Joseph says, I'm a testimony to that reality. Are you? What if, what if God intends for you to bless others in the middle of the mess you might find yourself in because of what other people have done to you? I didn't get the promotion, I lost a job, I feel great harm. What if rather than stewing over the sin of others, we see maybe God has me in this low spot to be a blessing. That's what Joseph did all along the way. It was amazing. Everywhere he found himself, he trusted in the blessing of God. And rather than cursing, he blessed those people around him. Everywhere he went, in jail, Potiphar's house, boom, he was a blessing. What if God wants the same thing for us? Even in the midst of the sin that we've experienced from others, what if God wants to use our lowliness and the mess that we're in to bless other people? Maybe he's put you in that place to bring good to others. That's what Joseph thought. And Joseph said, you don't have to be afraid for me for that reason. I no longer hold the sin against you because I've left it firmly in God's righteous and just hands. I no longer hold the sin against you because what you intended for evil, God intended for good. I forgive you. God was the reason. God's the reason we can forgive. And lastly, Reconciliation. Verse 21, it says, no, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. Now, just just remind you, this has been decades in the making. Joseph has had opportunity to be around his brother's to one degree or another for the past 17 years. And then this this cathartic explosion of emotion 
This is what we've done. Will you forgive us? We own it. He says, I forgive you. And you have this seemingly immediate moment of reconciliation. They were longing for it. Tears, an embrace. And he says, uh, you, you don't have to be scared of me. I will care for you. I'll care for your family. And he spoke kindly to them. But I wanted to remind you, we don't know all that took shape in these moments of reconciliation. We, we don't know if there's still more work had to be done after this moment or not. But I, I, I want you to know that forgiveness and reconciliation are very different things. In the same way that forgiveness can't be demanded, nor can reconciliation. We make the ask, this is what I've done, will you forgive me? We don't demand it, it's in their court. They respond and say, yeah, I forgive you. Jesus died for your sin. That might not be said out loud, it can be. It's powerful to say that out loud. And sometimes the expectation is, if you're the one that has done the sinning, is to say, well, let's just get back to the way things were right away. Can reconciliation just happen? <sighs> wow, I was able to confess that and you forgave me. I'm grateful for that. Can we just, can everything just be the way that it was? And the answer is no. Because although forgiveness can be given in a moment, reconciliation is a process. Especially if there has been a pattern of unconfessed sin and harm or the sin has been very grievous. But I, being in marriage ministry for almost 10 years now, I know there is a level of frustration for some who like, why, listen, I just, I asked for forgiveness. I did everything I was supposed to. Why can't we, why can't we just be reconciled? Because harm was done. Uh, trust was eroded. And forgiveness, after forgiveness comes a process of reconciliation. Forgiveness is not forgetting. That is not in the Bible. To forgive is to forget. That's not true. Now we get these from passages in Psalm and one other location, you can look it up later, where it talks about God casting sin as far the east from, from the west. It, nowhere does it say that God forgets our sin. What it does say is he no longer holds it against you. He's no longer gonna bring it up and remind you of what you've done. It's taken care of. But he remembers. Nor is that true for us. We don't have to act like we forget sin or pretend like it never happened. No, we extend forgiveness. For, uh, forgiveness postures us on a pathway towards reconciliation. 
It doesn't make reconciliation immediate. It just sets us up where I've handed that over to the Lord. I'm, I'm gonna be kind and gracious to you. I'm, I'm never gonna bring it up again. I'm not gonna hold it against you. I'm not gonna include it in a list of wrongs that you've done. I'm not gonna do that anymore. But believe me, between now and the time we're fully reconciled, it's gonna be a process of regaining trust to knowing that you really are putting to death the patterns of sin that you committed before. I'm gonna have to see those things take shape. And part of that is part of the natural consequences of sin. I think of David. I think of David. Remember, man, he did some horrendous stuff. He assaulted a woman, killed her husband. And, and until the prophet Nathan came to him, did he see his own sin and he repented, confessed before the Lord and the prophet. And, and the prophet Nathan says, God forgives you. But the rest of his life, was full of the consequences of his sin. Death reigned in his family and betrayal reigned in his family. And part of the natural consequences of sinning against another person, especially if it's an ongoing pattern of sin or if it's particularly grievous, there are natural consequences of that sin that require really intentional time and accountability so that reconciliation can really happen. There's caution, and there's wisdom in that. Forgiveness, if you've been on the recipient end of patterns of harmful sin, you can forgive that person. In fact, we're expected to from the word of God because of what Christ has done for us, but Forgiveness does not require for you to submit yourself all over again to that harm. And I know, as I've mentioned before, the one receiving forgiveness can feel frustration when reconciliation doesn't happen immediately. But if we, if you have sinned against someone and they've forgiven you and reconciliation doesn't happen right away, Pursue understanding. And, and you need to turn your frustration to, do I really get what I've done to them? Do I really get the harm that I've committed to them? Do I understand the cruelty of what I said? And I guarantee you, if you posture yourself to really understand the nature of the harm that you've done, even after you receive forgiveness, it'll go a long way for you to having victory over that particular sin and establishing accountability so that you never do it again. You can't just leave it with frustration. Pursue understanding. I think of, just as an example I think of Paul, the Apostle Paul. Y'all know the story. Paul was Pharisee of Pharisees. He was really zealous for what he believed to be true and, um, and denying that Jesus was the Messiah. He threw Christians in prison. He even was there when Stephen was killed, held the coats of others who were taking off their jackets so they could be more limber and able to cast stones at Stephen. He was there for all of that, and he, that, that weighed on him his whole life. 
But reconciliation wasn't immediate. Can you imagine? Paul has this incredible encounter with Jesus on the way to Damascus. He finds restoration and forgiveness. Ananias come, the scales fall, his eyes are opened. He gives himself to Jesus and commissioned by Jesus. And he goes to the apostles and say, hey, this is what happened. And the apostles are like, oh, everything's fine. It doesn't happen that way. Yeah, we forgive you. We're going to act like nothing happened. It doesn't happen that way. In Acts 9, verses 26, 26 through 27, it says, when Saul arrived, Paul arrived in Jerusalem. He tried. He tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. They did not believe he had truly become a believer. Caution. He, he says he's been forgiven, but caution. We, we, need to see, we need to see new rhythms, new patterns. We need to see real change before we yield ourselves to this man and just invite him into our midst. They, they created some boundaries. We know that through the testimony of Paul that he goes on. He, he, he doesn't start right away into ministry. He goes away for 14 years after he comes to faith in Christ, receiving the counsel of the Lord, revelation of God, before he's commissioned to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. It's a process. And not just a reconciliation. There's a whole lot of this stuff going on. We are a people, the church, and forgiveness now is a rhythm and pattern of life, of new life. It's a part of our DNA now because of what Christ has done. The, the way that we taste newness and growth and transformation is by way of forgiveness. And so in your relationships, my relationships with friends and coworkers and spouses, we are to embody this anatomy of forgiveness, the need. It can't go unconfessed. I can't pretend like this hasn't happened. I need to own it. The ask. This is what I've done. I name it. Will you forgive me? We don't demand it. And then the act of forgiveness, yes, I forgive you because of what Christ has done for me. I, I don't have to hold this against you any longer. It's in God's hands. Christ has died for you, therefore I forgive you. And, and God's gonna use even the mess of this sin, your sin, to bring great good. And reconciliation. You know, what you said to me, what you have been saying to me, the way you've criticized me, the way you manipulated me, that hurts and it stings and it, I, we, I just can't get over that. I'll forgive you, but I can't get over that overnight. But I, we're gonna, there's gonna be a process and I expect you to continue to change and, and, and have, be accountable for the words that you say and the things that you've done. And over time, with great intentionality, the chasm can be closed and we can be reconciled, but nothing will ever be exactly the same that it was, but, but we can be reconciled, but it's just going to take some time. That's the anatomy of forgiveness.
Is that how it's working out in your life? Some of you, some of you are carrying a weight that at one point might have felt small, but it's not. Some of you have been quiet about your sin, just sweeping it underneath the rug and jokes, and now it seems fine, it's not. The enemy will use unforgiveness and unconfessed sin to erode your life away. New life is found through forgiveness through Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the story of Joseph and forgiving of his brothers. Now teach us, help us to put it into practice. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Thank you for joining us here at First Baptist Church of San Antonio, whether online or on broadcast, in your homes or wherever you may be. We want you to know that you are more than welcome to be a part of the life of this church. And we want you to know that we want you to meet Jesus today. In order for this to happen regularly, we need your support. We need your prayers and we need your financial gifts. Please continue to give and be a part of what we do today.